If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. The scripture lesson this morning is Psalm 122, a song of praise and a prayer for Jerusalem. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here ends this reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Most of the Bible, I have decided, is people encouraging each other to do the exact opposite of whatever they are currently doing. Like in the fourth chapter of the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, do not worry about anything, precisely because the people were a bunch of worry warts. In the fifth chapter of his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, pray without ceasing, apparently because the Thessalonians weren't the praying kind. And here, it's obvious that the author of this psalm, Psalm 122, is a parent trying to get their 13-year-old up, dressed, and out the door for church by proclaiming in an overly cheery voice, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because the 13-year-old is not glad about going to the house of the Lord. This was right before that parent promised donuts or some kind of overpriced caffeinated drink that looks like a giant cup of Cool Whip if the kid would just get up. Parenting. Do whatever it takes to stay alive. For what it's worth, Psalm 122 is actually appropriate for getting out the door. This is a psalm pilgrims would sing on their way to and upon arrival in Jerusalem for the great festivals of Passover, unleavened bread, and tabernacles. 
For this ancient psalmist, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a journey into the very presence of the divine. This, quite frankly, seems a little outlandish, and not just because of what's happening today in Jerusalem, but because we know the history. Jerusalem has never been consistently peaceful and secure, even for ancient Israel. The Babylonians destroyed the city in 587 BCE, bringing down its walls and bringing to an end the Davidic monarchy. No king in David's line would ever again sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Furthermore, the prophets said that Jerusalem's destruction had come about because it was not a place of justice, that in fact it had become a city of violence and oppression and idolatry. Biblical scholars think that it was during this time of exile that Psalm 122 was written, ironically, when the people of Israel were actually incapable of going to Jerusalem. Eventually, lo, the exile ended and the city was rebuilt, but then Jerusalem was destroyed again by the Romans in 70 CE. And through the long years of the diaspora, the dispersion of Jews beyond Israel, prayer for the peace of Jerusalem became an expression of longing for deliverance from oppression and of hope for unity and restoration. In our own day, the land of Jerusalem is once more a battleground as innocents on all sides of the conflict fall to Palestinian suicide bombers and Israeli tanks. Once more, Jerusalem has become for many a symbol not of justice and peace, but of injustice and violence. And in this regard, the psalm is shockingly relevant. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, verse six commands. We are a bit hesitant though. It's tempting to think of this psalm as a relic or even more depressing as a rallying cry for Zionism. But the text itself rejects this. The vital feature of the psalm that saves it from being a jingoistic embrace of Jerusalem as a political power is that it begins and it ends not with the palace of David, but with the house of the Lord, not with military might, but with radical hospitality. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Few psalms give literal directives like this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Right now, stop what you're doing and pray for its peace. For on its peace hangs the peace of the world. Jerusalem is, in so many ways, a microcosm of the violence and mistrust that stalks all the earth, seemingly unchecked. When it comes to peace, in Jerusalem, we've tried many, many other things besides prayer, of course. We've tried lecturing Jerusalem into peace, paternalizing it into peace, arming it into peace, policing it into peace, and most obsessively trying to policy it into peace, some more harmful policies than others. The current administration has changed several core American policies toward Israel, long demanded by Israeli right-wingers and their American supporters. These include cutting aid to the United Nations agency that helps Palestinian refugees and recognizing Israeli claims to Jerusalem as its capital and to the Golan Heights. 
In the latest and most mystifying of such gifts, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo declared that the United States no longer regards Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank as a violation of international law. It was not clear whether Mr. Pompeo made his announcement in the 11th hour bid to bolster Mr. Netanyahu or to curry favor with American evangelicals who fiercely support Israeli settlers and are a core Trump constituency. Whatever the motive, the declaration did nothing to change the fact that the settlements on occupied territory violate international law. They are not the only obstacle to peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, but they are an obstacle to peace. But of course, as Brett Stevens writes, ultimately, peace, if it comes, will not be the result of a diplomatic solution, much less as part of a legal argument over the Geneva Convention. It will happen as a cultural evolution in which a new generation of Palestine leaders dedicate themselves to building up the institutions of a decent state rather than attacking those of their neighbor, and in which Israelis have the wisdom to wait for those leaders and perhaps to change their own. Real, lasting peace will come, not through checkpoints, guns, or divisive rhetoric, but through changed hearts and minds, something only prayer can do. This is the wisdom from Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is because prayer involves confession of our own shortcomings, of the ways we do not do the things that make for peace. Prayer involves repentance, which literally means to turn around, to reverse course, to stop doing what we've always done. And prayer involves listening, which is to risk hearing a new narrative, a new word, and to chance taking a new path. So in addition to policymaking and compromise, we cannot leave out the spiritual component of this work, for to do so would be to leave the cookies on the high shelf. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, indeed. But this psalm is not simply about the physical city of Jerusalem. Throughout all of scripture, Jerusalem is also allegory of the church, of the faithful soul, of the kingdom of God. So when we hear, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we also hear, pray for the peace of the world, pray for the peace of our hearts, pray for the peace of those we think of as our enemies. This is the vision of the psalmist. Verse three speaks of a city being firmly bound together, which is more than admiration of masonry, the adjective used here normally speaks of fabric or of people, people bound or woven together. This is the kingdom of God. So what does any of this have to do with Advent, which we have made a, a bit of a deal of this morning by lighting candles and changing the words to the doxology and hanging our blue paraments? Remember that this psalm was sung while on pilgrimage to the holy city. Along the way, the people sung 
songs of justice and peace. They give thanks and they called for prayer. Imagine once they arrived the feet of these pilgrims, dusty, arthritic, calloused, and sore, but with their hearts prepared to live in the world they had been singing about. Or in the words of Mother Pollard, who on refusing the offer of a ride during the Montgomery bus boycott said, my feet is tired, but my heart is rested. Advent is our invitation to this kind of preparation. Advent is from an old Latin phrase, ad venio, loosely translated, until the coming. It is a time of spiritual preparation for the coming of the good news, also known to us as Christmas, which we tell as a story about a baby born to two peasants in occupied territory, celebrated by outcast shepherds, God's love most fully expressed. Christmas is itself the adaptation of an ancient ritual known as Saturnalia, a raucous occasion that celebrated the return of the light. It took place on the eve of the winter solstice, an evening that marked the sun's slow walk back from the lengthening nights. The light was returning. When early Christian communities, who knew very little about how or when the birth of Jesus actually took place, when they wanted to find a fitting time to commemorate his birth, they appointed this ritual and decided the return of the light was the perfect metaphor for celebrating the coming of Jesus. And so Saturnalia became Christmas. But before the light returns, before Christmas, things can seem pretty dark. So we use Advent to look for light, to prepare for justice and peace, to act as if the not yet is already, so that it might not seem so jarring when it does arrive. We are to ready the world, not with military might, but with radical hospitality. This is Advent. And this is why we drag our kids, and sometimes ourselves, out of bed and all the way to church, because here we join with other pilgrims on the journey towards a world of peace and justice. Because here we can tip our candle towards our neighbor's candle and create more light, and then take it into places where the shadows are overwhelming. So what if we really set aside these four weeks leading up to Christmas? What if we really are glad to go to the house of the Lord because we expect a good word, we expect a challenging word, because we expect to find a place to change, a point on which to pivot? What if we committed to prayerful confession, repentance, and listening Trusting that though our feet be covered with mud and trouble and worry, we will end up in a place where our hearts are rested and our faces awash in light. 
At St. Louis University, there is a small Jesuit chapel. The light fixtures are made of 20th century cannon shells, converted. Emptied of their lethal contents, they now hold light for people to pray by. During the four weeks of Advent, we have the chance to do this very thing. When our hearts are emptied of the lethal contents of worry and ego and jealousy, then there is room for peace and humility and grace. And having laid down our weapons, we bear witness to the promise of greater transformation of the world in days to come. As the song says, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.